0: Blog talk Radio.
1: Welcome to the Story Blender. This is Stephen James, and you have found the place where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. And today's guest is someone that I keep running into at different conferences and keep hearing about. Different people say, oh, you've got to talk to her. Finally, we tracked her down, and Gabriela Pereira is our guest on the Story Blender for today. She's a writer and a speaker and self-proclaimed word nerd who wants to challenge the status quo of higher education. She has a master's degree in creative writing and teaches at conferences nationwide as well as regional workshops and online courses. She's the instigator of DIY MFA, uh, com, host of the podcast DIY MFA Radio and author of the book DIY MFA. Write with focus, read with purpose, build your community. And um, Gabriella, thanks for being on the show today.
0: It's great to be here. I'm very excited.
1: Yeah, our paths have crossed at a number of different events, and um, so it's finally a good chance to be able to to say hi. Um, so, um, so yeah, so you do quite a bit of speaking. It looks like.
0: Yes, I do. Um, yeah, it's kind of kind of fun. It's one of my my favorite things. I love I love just being with my word nerds. That's what I call anyone who's sort of part of the DIY MFA universe and I see conferences and speaking as a way to connect with new potential word nerds. So it's very much fun.
1: Well that's great. And I know one of the things we'll chat a little bit about is balancing out and pursuing this life of being a storyteller, being a writer. And uh, and somehow you found a way to, to balance all of it, so maybe you have a secret pill or something you're taking, I'm <laughs> not really quite sure, but...
0: You know, when uh, you say that, it makes me feel guilty because I, on one hand, feel like, yes, I do a lot of writing, but I haven't written a whole lot of fiction in a long time. And so there, it's always – this is sort of the reality of the balancing act is that it's never quite a balancing act, right? Like you're usually having to choose thing A over thing B, and I've just had to intentionally choose DIY MFA and building this company and building everything that goes around it over, say, writing short stories or working on a novel. Hopefully I'll get to that again soon, but it's right now it's not the focus. So I think balance is almost a misnomer. It's sort of like a tug of war, I feel like.
1: Yeah, no matter what, yeah, that's a good point. You know, no matter what you do, you've got to, like, focus is a matter of elimination, I think, and that Mm. balance is, like what you said, sort of a misnomer is like, Every time that you choose to do one thing, you're choosing not to do a myriad of other things, and so you have this um, this idea of focus. To me, means you have to eliminate and decide. And and uh, anyway, we're glad that you have decided to focus for a while on this new program, and I want to hear more to, about it. Yeah,
0: I'd love to add also. So the the way I often explain balance because I think it's such an important thing to bring up, and it, it's it's not like it's kind of like uh being on a boat right? And you've got this thing on one side that's pulling you and you sort of lean that way and then you've got this other thing and you're sort of being pulled between, you're sort of rocking back and forth between the things that you're trying to, to balance as it were, right? And I'm not a big sea ocean faring person, in fact I kind of hate the water, but as <laughs> I understand when you are on a boat if you try to fight the rocking of the boat you will make yourself sick whereas if you kind of allow your body and allow yourself to sort of move with the boat, that's when, and you sort of move with the imbalance of it all, that's when you actually are able to find your sea legs. So it's kind of that contradiction of like, sometimes we imagine finding a balance between our writing lives or our regular lives and the rest of everything else that's going on, our day jobs, whatever, like it's some sort of rigid balance so where we're holding everything still and in place, when in fact, it's sort of the organic motion and the lack of balance that allows us To find our way and navigate through that thing if that makes any sense
1: yeah it does you know um, a few years ago I guess I was talking with someone and and he you know the basically the question that people ask is like where do you want to be in five years what do you want to be doing in ten years you know if you apply for a job or something like that and you know I tell people sometimes stop setting goals and start setting priorities and You know, if your priority is your family, you might have a goal to finish your novel this year, but all of a sudden your your son gets ill or your wife, you know, gets cancer or whatever it might be. And it's like, well, what's your priority? Well, I didn't meet my goal of finishing my novel this year. I know, but you cared for your kid. I know, but you were there for your wife. So um, I think that that balance is a matter of saying what in my life is my priority, And then pursuing that and keeping goals as something flexible, as something that can change depending on what your priorities end up allowing you to do or or not do.
0: I, I love that, and you know, it's it's interesting. Also, you said the thing with the goals, like five, you know, the five year goal. I used to have a right. five year plan. I now am lucky if I have a six month plan. But <laughs> a, a mentor of mine, Kelsey Ramsden, who's this amazing, brilliant entrepreneur, uh, she once explained goal setting in a very interesting way. She used golf as a metaphor. And again, I will say, I'm using a metaphor that I know nothing about because I don't play golf. I've tried. I really wish I could play golf. I cannot make the stick hit that little ball. It just does not work for me. But the way she explained it was that most people, when they're playing golf, they aim for the flag, right? Like they aim for the green and they try to hit the ball as close to that, you know, little hole as they possibly can. The problem with that is that, and that's sort of the equivalent of trying to like hit the five-year goal, you know, from the first stroke. But another much more reliable way to actually sink the the ball in the hole is to get the ball sort of in that direction and then course correct, hit it again, and then course correct and sort of make these small adjustments as you go and the way she explained it is you know a one degree error when you're aiming all the way for the green that you know carried over however many yards it is from where you tee off to where you want to get the ball that one degree of error could actually land you all the way like in a lake or in a sand trap or wherever whereas if you sort of aim at smaller goals along the way and then course correct as you go then you're much more likely to actually get to the ultimate goal that you wanted to reach in the first place so i thought that was such a brilliant way of uh explaining like goal setting and the sort of fallacy of the 5 year plan
1: yeah and your goal today is to come up with one more metaphor of something you know nothing about so <laughs> let's see how well you course correct <laughs> no, i'm just kidding but uh, but a lot of people who are listening are entrepreneurs. A lot of them um, are writers or speakers, business business professionals, and they have presentations they want to be um, listened to in a, in a great way. And so they're fans of great storytelling. And so I feel like it's a great fit between your um, pursuit of entrepreneurs and, and do it yourself, you know, MFA, and as well as your passion for you know telling. Stories well, um, and I'm very interested in this whole idea of taking on like the entire educational system <laughs> with one person. Um, and uh, and tell us, uh, what does this mean? Like do it do it yourself MFA, or what what is that even referring to?
0: So uh, let me let me start by answering that, by telling you the origin story. So I got an MFA myself, and I, went, I like to say that I went to the MFA and I got an MFA for all the wrong reasons, and yet they are exactly the reasons that most people go and get MFAs for. And what, if people are wondering what MFA stands for, it's Master Fine Arts, it's the degree that you get if you want to get a master's degree in creative writing. It can also be in art and music, et cetera. And I remember I went to the MFA because I had gone to college, I'd been an English major, I'd done some writing, I'd also studied graphic design, and I'd also worked in the toy industry, and I was really interested in design and children's books and product development and all these things. And I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know how I, I didn't feel qualified, right? Because I hadn't gone to school. I've been an English major, but I hadn't been a creative writing major. I hadn't published a book yet. So I didn't feel like I had any of those qualifications. I was suffering from massive imposter syndrome. So in my logical brain, I thought, well, the easiest way to get a credential, a stamp of approval is to go to school and you graduate, like it's very clear path, right? You do the courses, get the, the diploma. The problem with the MFA is that unlike, say, a law degree or a medical degree, what I didn't realize going into it is that you don't actually need the degree to practice the thing you're trying to learn. Right, right. right. You can be a writer. Like, I certainly hope if I ever have to, you know, have my open heart surgery that my doctor will have gone to a medical school. I really hope that that (laughs) will be the case. Same thing with like, you know, if I'm on trial for my life, I really hope the lawyer actually went to law school. But when it comes to writing, it, when we're picking a book up off a shelf, we're not thinking, okay, does John Grisham have a lo- uh, MFA or, you know, right, so right. And so. like we just pull the book off the shelf because we want to read a good book. But at the time, you know, being a writing newbie, I thought that that was the take it. And so I remember I went to the MFA program. I went to the new school in New York City. I had a wonderful experience. The MFA wasn't the DIY MFA was in no way a response to having a bad experience as an MFA student. To the contrary, I graduated and I was scared out of my wits because I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't feel prepared to go off and be a writer now. And I distinctly remember I was sitting in this rickety old church in the West Village in New York City. And I half expected light to stream in through the windows, through the stained glass and the skies would part and like angel choirs would sing. And suddenly I would become a writer and I'd feel like, you know, I had arrived, and of course, that completely did not happen.
1: Oh, it so didn't happen in... for you like that, huh? Oh no, every other author is... that I know, that's exactly. what no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, but seriously, like I half expected that to be the case, and then right. at this moment after the graduation, of feeling kind of let down, like am I, am I really a writer? And at the same time, I had this other piece tugging at me, talk about like the tug of war. On one hand, I felt this tremendous imposter syndrome. On the other hand, I had a lot of friends who were writers at, at this point I'd been making friends both online and at conferences who, and these were all people who were writers, but who didn't have an MFA. And they were all like, we're so jealous. You got to go back to school and dedicate your life to writing. Now you're the real deal. So now that's like even more imposter syndrome. Right. And right. I remember thinking, like, what if there was a way to DIY what I learned? Because I certainly learned a lot, but to do it without having to take out loans or have to take two years out of your life, I, I recognized even when I was there that I was in a very privileged position. My husband at the time, or my husband at that point. Had, had a very responsible job with a big, big law firm. So we could afford for me to take time off of work for two years so that I could go back to school. I mean, what a luxury, right? And we didn't have children. So we didn't have to worry about whether my master's degree tuition was going to affect our children's ability to go to college. Like it was, we were in a position where I could afford to do that and it wasn't going to be disastrous. And I recognize that that is very much not the case for a lot of people. So, that's where the idea for DIY MFA came from. It was from wanting to both recognize that there is a need for something, some sort of learning, and that you don't necessarily need that stamp of approval and trying to divorce the two from each other. Um, So that was sort of my initial goal. Did that answer your question?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was good. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's almost in some writing circles, if you have an MFA, it's almost like, oh, well, he studied, you know, Master of Fine Arts in in creative writing. And kind of people wave the degree around and, and it's sort of people think, oh, they must be a literary writer or something. There's different genres of writing and some people look down on literary and some people look down on what um, others might say is, oh, that's just genre fiction or something like that. Mm-hmm.
0: And it doesn't help
1: any of us, you know, to do that.
0: And, I mean, that was also another piece in developing DIY MFA that I kind of wanted to unpack what the actual – rubric of the education, what the curriculum was from the sort of ivory tower-ness of it. Yeah. And so the, in developing it, I realized that, and this wasn't just from studying in my own MFA program, but like when I was starting to tinker with this concept of DIY MFA, I began looking at other programs. Like I had already done some research because I had to apply to programs in the first place. And then I started looking more broadly, like what do most MFAs say that their curriculum looks like. And the three things that came up again and again and again, and they're in the title of my book, they were writing, reading, and community. And so then I started thinking, okay, how would one DIY that? Like, if you had to do it yourself, how would you acquire the writing and learning the craft and the getting the words on the page, piece of the puzzle? How do you figure out the reading component, like those literature classes and reading the books that you think you're supposed to be reading? And then how do you build that community? The convenience of the MFA program, and I think what people really are paying for when they go to these programs, is to have a one-stop shop and not have to think about all of those yeah. things because it's served up to them, and that's certainly worth. It's certainly worth it to if you have the money to spend. It's just that for people who don't, there are other ways, and I tried to be creative in how you could cobble those things together.
1: Now, uh, a big aspect of what you do is is not just writing, but the reading part that you mentioned. Uh, I'm curious, do you? Um, Do you have certain books that you suggest in the literature genre, or is that more on the art of writing and the craft of writing?
0: So as with everything at DIY MFA, it's always a little bit meta. So I don't believe in prescribing like you need to read these five specific books. Instead, I like to give people a rubric to let them self-select, like, which books they want. So the way I think about writing is there's sort of two pieces, or not writing, reading, is there sort of two types of books that you need to be looking at. One are sort of the essentials, the the go-to resources and references that pretty much every writer should have on their shelf. And I think that this boils down to three books, but what those three specific books are will depend on from person to person. And I remember them as the ABCs. So the A stands for an anthology of short form literature. The B is for a book of writing exercises or prompts. And C is a craft reference book. And so with the anthology, that I think is just useful because you can – in one handy volume have a representation across whatever genre you are trying to work in. And I often recommend that writers try to find an anthology or a collection of short stories or short form work within uh-huh. the genre that they are writing so that they can get a feel for the the heavy hitters in their niche. Um, with books of prompts, I personally am a fan of books that are organized not by not at random, but by technique. So there's some books that you'll find, like the writing exercises, one chapter is only dialogue exercises and one is only character or description. And this way you can actually find exercises and use them as a way to solve problems that you're running into in your own project without actually having to tinker within the confines of your manuscript. Because I find that that's always dangerous, right? You tinker too much within the manuscript and you get too experimental and you could break it. But if you do an exercise, at least for me, if I do an exercise kind of outside of that space, I then learn from that exercise and I can reapply what I learned to the actual manuscript. And then the craft reference book, it's just, you know, because sometimes it's useful to know, okay, how do I figure out X or like, you know, how does one format dialogue in such and such thing? Or, you know what I mean? Like there's sometimes you have like pragmatic questions like punctuation or whatever. Um, So those are the sort of go-to books. And so really like you just need three books on your shelf, in my opinion. I mean, I have like 50 writing books on my shelf, but that's because (laughs) it's my job to have 50 writing books. But I recommend that people save their money and their shelf space for other books that they would rather write and or rather read and choose only three. And then for the other side of it, like the building of a reading list. So in most writing programs, when you go, you take a literature class, say at an MFA program, the professor on the first day will hand you a syllabus and it'll have a list of like 15 to 20 books that you are going to read over the course of the semester. Basically, you get to be the professor. So with DIY MFA, I recommend that writers use what I call the four C's and build a reading list that balances between the four essential things that you should have in your repertoire while you're working on a project. So these are the comps, the comp titles, the uh, contextual books. So books that put your current project into context in some way. This includes like research and things Um, contemporary books. So what is new in your niche? I don't count something as contemporary if it's been published like more than three years from right now Mm -hmm. and then the classics and I'm a firm believer that something can be classic without being old if it's had staying power I think I consider it a classic.
1: Now, it's interesting. I don't know if I've ever gotten onto my soapbox about classics before on this show, but but um, I believe that, you know, whenever people talk about the test of time, that something has to have, have served the te- or, or passed the test of time, right? I think the test of time has to do with the attraction of that piece of literature to readers. So, for example, Ed- Edgar Allan Poe has stood the test of time. Like, people still today want to go read Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and they'll still check him out or, um, Tolkien has stood the test of time. I mean, his books are still, people still would go and, and read them, but like Sister Carrie or the, um, Scarlet Letter, it's like the only reason people read those books is if, if they have to read them under, you know, threaten of punishment of getting a bad grade. And so you know, my kind of thing is, you know, it's like, um, okay, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say though, it, it's interesting because I, I think that there's definitely the standing the test of time piece of it. And then there's also this like miss, uh, People misinterpret what classic means. Like, for example, um, take uh, YA as a category. YA is a relatively new category when it comes to novels, right? Like, it basically only started in the 1960s with The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. That means that books that were published in the 1990s, when there was that, like, whole YA category, what's the word like renaissance of the 1990s with like Laurie Hall Sanderson and all those other books those are kind of classics even though right. they're not all that old but yeah, within no, the context I, yeah, I of the category point.
1: i just remember you know my daughter uh, when she was in high school was systematically taught to hate reading by being assigned books that that were no longer relevant that were not even that well written Um, and she grew up to hate reading because unless she read these specific books and, you know, outlined them or their themes and stuff like that for classes, then she was, you know, penalized. And so, you know, personally as a writer, I think that's so tragic. I think that we should, you know, be encouraging people to read um, the books that really move them and there are there are so many, and I meet people today too who are like oh yeah i haven 't read a book since high school," and I just think, "Oh no you know and they 're like, yeah, I, I, I learned to hate reading That's no
0: just, it's yeah. it 's interesting also what you said with um the Scarlet Letter, for example. So I happen to be a huge fan of Nathaniel Hawthorne. I hated uh-huh. the Scarlet Letter, like visceral, I will vomit on this book kind of hatred, like absolutely hated this book. But I love his short fiction, which again, brings me back to that whole anthology thing, right? Like, yeah. I would much rather see a reader get a sense for what Nathaniel Hawthorne was doing and what uh, Edgar Allan Poe was doing, and like all these other sort of classics by yeah. reading short fiction, because you can actually grasp it all in sort of one like you can hold it in your brain in one sitting. You try to do that with the Scarlet Letter, it's going to make you, it made me want to cry. So that's sort of, I think, part of the issue as well. Like sometimes to get a sense of the classics, I personally get most of those heavy duty classics out of my anthology, not from reading yeah. entire books. I'd yeah, also add.
1: Good. Oh
0: go ahead. i'd also i'd also add that with um with things like Edgar Allan Poe or what have you, like when you're looking at the context of the genre, that on one hand you want to like take into consideration how new or relatively old the genre is. But then also it's worth looking at who the forefathers or foremothers of the genre yeah. are. And I actually got that idea from hearing a David Morrell speak at one of the Thriller fests these past years, where he was talking about like the first, looking at first novels of different genres or different techniques and yeah. so that you get a sense of like where did you know romance come from where did horror come from and that can then inform your writing
1: today yeah and Paul I mean with Murders in the Room Org I mean he basically introduced three genres of fiction with one story the detective story that closed room mystery and profiling that, mm. that that we have today and so it's like these incre- like these incredibly popular genres um, are we're, we're really we're rooted back to one short story. I think that's just it's amazing, and so I love the flexibility of your approach. Actually, so instead of telling people you have to read these twenty novels or something, um, that you say, okay, look, look at these aspects. Maybe the short fiction. Try some different, um, you know, writers on for size. See how they fit. Look at, you know, who the pioneers were, and you know, realize that they were written in a different age, right? You know, twenty mm-hmm. or fifty or a hundred years ago, there were different conventions, and you know, some people ask me, well, this, I went and saw this play that won a Pulitzer Prize in, you know, nineteen forty-four or something, and it wasn't funny at all, and it was, you know, it was supposed to be hilarious. I'm like, well, it's a different time, right? It's like. Um, it's not necessarily that it's bad writing but it's you have to understand the context and if you take something like that out of historical context yeah it might be hard to understand or It might not be funny anymore.
0: Absolutely. I would also say, and, you know, the story you said about your daughter, like that breaks my heart because, but at the same time, I, while I never hated reading, I struggled with it. And I self-shamed a lot about reading. Like I was that kid in high school and in college who got pretty decent grades, but like never finished a reading assignment. And I'd sort of <laughs> secretly like skimming during class. I actually yeah. learned how to speed read and like how to skim really well because of that, because I couldn't bring myself to read books that were boring. And yeah. then it was in graduate school at the MFA program. What my favorite professor, he gave us an assignment. He, he, on the first day of class, he was, we were doing this class on the vernacular and he walks in and he says, look, these books they, some of them are going to be really rough, like you're not going to want to finish them. And you know what? That's okay. If you can get past the first 10 pages and then give me a compelling argument as to why you did not finish the book, you have a free pass not to finish any book on this list.
1: And wow, that to me that's, was eye-opening Yeah.
0: yeah. because I nice. thought like – First of all, he was honoring the fact that, you know, as students, we had better things to do with our time than to, like, read a book that was painful. But he also made us think critically. Like, we couldn't just say, oh, yeah, it was boring and not read. Like, we had to give a compelling reason as to what about the book made us put it down. And isn't that what agents do? Like, when people, publishers and agents or even our readers put our books down, that's essentially what they're doing. They're saying, eh. It's not for me anymore. And if we as writers then can identify what is making someone not want to get past, you know, the third chapter, that's yeah. a very useful piece of information.
1: I think that's a neat approach. Man, I never had I never had that professor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was like I said, my favorite professor because of that. That and the fact that he walked in the first day and plopped a bottle of wine on the table. I was like, score. All right, we see how that, dude.
1: Now um, okay, so this is all this is all fascinating and I'm I know that some people are listening and they're saying, Okay, well give us some idea of what sort of material you might cover in this in this class or course or in your book and I know we were chatting off the air for a minute, just about characterization and how you have some specific steps to help build and define and develop the characters of, you know, the stories that we're writing. I was wondering if you could take us through a couple of those points and, um, and just give us some specific uh, ideas on crafting more compelling characters.
0: So I I like to call it my seven steps to a stronger story, which is really about creating a stronger character-driven story, right? Because the character is at the heart of every story. So step one, you start with a character. Like that in and of itself, at first I used to think like you start a story with the story, with the premise. No, it's really about the character because while people read, they, they might pick up a book and start reading it because of the premise, like, oh, cool, the Hunger Games, like kids in an arena killing each other. That sounds interesting. But really what they remember are the characters. They remember Katniss Everdeen standing up and volunteering for her sister. They remember Rue and the, you know, Peta, the boy with the bread. Like those are the things that stay with you in a book, not, you know, the premise of what the book is about. So that's step one is you start with a character. And step two, you make the character want something. And with uh, with the want, it's interesting because while the want has to feel like life or death to the character, it could be something very mundane. It doesn't have to be like the Hunger Games, you know, I want to like, Survive because everyone else is fighting to the death. It could be something as simple as a glass of water, but it still has to have those life or death stakes or that feeling of life or death. A great example, um, James Scott Bell once gave this example where it's kind of like the characters in Seinfeld, you know, like they might be talking about the most ridiculous things, like, oh my gosh, she has man hands or no soup for you. And yet it feels like no soup for you could be a death sentence because it's just. (laughs) that tragic because it matters that much to the characters like it doesn't matter to us the viewers but we don't matter what matters is that the characters are that invested in no soup for you or the man hands or whatever so the character has to want something and that something has to be meaningful it has to mean something and have something at stake for the characters
1: now I'll let you you pause here yeah I was going to let you pause for just a second before you go to three because I think so many people that start to write don't get those first two. They start talking about the setting or a character and they just describe the character. And they tell us about the character and what the character's wearing and where the character is and what the character's past was and what her favorite pet was when she was 11. And and none of that really matters to the moment. I mean it might give some context later on if it's important to the story, but but having a character in, involved in a pursuit of something that matters to him as I believe it's at the core of every well told story.
0: So and that segues beautifully into step three, which is identifying the storytelling superpower. And the storytelling superpower is a concept that I began tinkering with last summer right as the DIY MFA book was coming out and I kinda of wanted to play with a new idea. And I actually have some Sort of, I have some ideas of where I want to take it, but I'm not quite sure where it's going to go yet. But I can tell yeah. you what this is. The concept is that you have two basic types of characters, right? At, at the extremes, it's basically a spectrum. And the extremes are either the everyman, boy next door, ordinary Joe kind of character who's caught in some sort of extraordinary circumstance. Or on the other extreme of that spectrum, you have the larger-than-life, heroic, James Bond, dirty, hairy, you know, those you know, superheroes, Superman, Batman kind of guys, right? And of course, there's a lot of gradations in between, but most characters will lean in one direction or another. When it comes to what the character wants, we're also dealing with a spectrum. The char- But the two extremes are different. The character might want to change something, something in themselves, something in the world around them, something in their family situation, what have you. On the other extreme, their ultimate want might be to preserve, preserve their own life, survive. Preserve the world around them, save their loved ones, whatever it is, it's one or the other. Or it's not so much one or the other, actually. It's more like a spectrum. But most, again, most characters will lean more towards one than the other. A great example, for instance, would be Katniss Everdeen. On one hand, she's drawn to protecting her sister. So she's a little bit on the preserve side. But she's also very much on the change side. Like she wants to change her circumstances and she doesn't like what's happening in her district. So it's kind of like the tug is strong. To the change side of the spectrum than the preserve side. So, if you take those two uh, sort of binary things and you cross them with each other, you get what I call the storytelling superpower, which is basically a two by two matrix where, depending on whether the character is ordinary or regular or larger than life, and depending on whether they want to change or preserve things, like whether their drive to change or drive to preserve is most dominant, you get one of four archetypes. And these are the underdog, the disruptor, the survivor, and the protector. Once you know what archetype you're generally dealing with in your story, you then kind of you can then put them in situations that will make them behave badly or struggle. And ultimately, you a story is only interesting if the character struggles. Right. So, for instance, if you're dealing with like Katniss Everdeen, I personally think she's at least at the start of the Hunger Games, she's an underdog. And so putting her in a scenario where she is clearly out, out like she's clearly the underdog she's clearly not the strongest she's not the most skilled she's also got an attitude problem which does not work well in her favor and she's got all these things that she is up against and so because of that being the underdog like being in that arena situation where she's up against such difficult you know, obstacles, that's what makes the story more interesting. If she had been a larger-than-life disruptor character or a protector character, the arena, it would have almost been like she was one of the District 2 or District 1 tributes, and it wouldn't be as interesting of a struggle because she it doesn't counter the archetype that she is. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it's good, and um, I, I don't know... Um... I don't know, I was trying to think as you were talking about my characters and some of my novels, and I don't really know where they would fall, but I think at different points in a story, it's, it's a really interesting matrix to think through at this moment in the story, what is the character trying to do? Is he trying to change something or preserve it? And how does that affect his relationship to himself and to other people? And um, I think in the climax of really literally any story, you want your main character to be the underdog. Um, you know, when he's facing evil, and when Superman is facing his challenge at the end, well, somehow you have to figure out a way for him to be the underdog. Otherwise, we're like, well, of course he's Superman. He's just do this and that and this and that. Um, so, so I think that characters probably morph from one of those archetypes to another, depending upon where in the story. Um, you know, you as the author are, are pinpointing or or pigeonholing them.
0: Absolutely. And, I mean, just because a character is larger than life does not mean that they are infallible. But what it means is that the challenge for the writer is different, right? Because what you were saying with Superman, he is a larger-than-life character. Um, I would say Superman is a typical protector archetype, right? He wants to keep things safe, protect people, save the day. And yet he still has to be up against a challenge that is so much bigger than he is. And the key with him is that it's not just about making the big bad thing that he's up against bigger than him. It's about showing a personal vulnerability. So take the movie, the first Superman movie, where he has to choose between stopping the bomb that is going to New Jersey because the woman, Lex Luthor's girlfriend, has just let him escape. And she said, you have to save my mother. She lives in New Jersey. Or going and saving Lois Lane in California. And he, he has to, because he's, he does the right thing. He's Superman. He has to go to New Jersey. And then that moment where he just breaks when he arrives and Lois Lane has died. And like, you just see that complete and total loss. That's, that's the trick with the with the protector with the larger than life is showing that chink in the armor that moment where the character is just stripped down and so vulnerable and that's the the challenge with the larger than life character is in some ways to not make them to to bring them back in their vulner- like make them vulnerable, whereas with the underdog it's the challenge is to help them rise up so that they can rise to the occasion and be the underdog and win in the in the final showdown, but for the larger than life, it's kind of the flip side like you need to show them break first before they can build back up
1: now Gabriella, do you think that the um the setbacks or the struggles that your character faces? Are there mainly to change or alter that character, as some people teach, or there to reveal who the character already is, as some people teach? Um, so, in other words, so when the character faces the difficulty, some people will say, "Well, a character always has to change," um, and and then other people will say, "Well, no, because series characters don't change ultimately in every encounter." I mean, James Bond isn't changed and altered you know, on a fundamental level in every story. But instead, people come to those stories because they're not changed, because they like spending time with Sherlock Holmes or James Bond or whoever it might be. What's your take on that, on the dichotomy between transformation versus um, revelation?
0: So I have another theory called, I call it the opposite is possible theory. So going back to those two Extremes, right? Those two archetypes of characters, the ordinary Joe Jane versus the larger than life hero. The trick with any character is to show that there is the possibility. For them to be the opposite of who they are at the get-go. That doesn't mean that you have to make them the opposite. It just means that you have to show that it is possible. So with the ordinary Joe or Jane character, this is where you need to show that it is possible for them to rise to the occasion, that there is that little spark in them. Like there's a reason that Katniss Everdeen could win the Hunger Games, and that's what kind of keeps us enticed throughout the story with the larger than life character, what makes them interesting and what you have to show is that it's possible for them to be vulnerable. This is where they talk about, you know, the pet, the dog moment in like the clean Clint Eastwood or action movies, you know, where the character (laughs) has that moment of vulnerability where they pet the little dog and, and you're like, Oh, but I mean, the, the Superman example is a great example of a pet, the dog moment that does not involve a dog where like you see the vulnerability, you see that moment where he is, he is human, even though he's superhuman. So, so yeah. I mean, it basically goes goes down to like uh, showing that it's possible that the character could change, but you don't necessarily have to make them change.
1: Yeah. No. I think uh, I like that. That's interesting. Um, and uh, so we're th- we're thinking through the idea of what are the possibilities, the potentialities for this character? Could he or she become? you know the opposite of what they are and if they're good like maybe a you know a really good character is do they have the potential to become that which they you know fear or that which they hunt if you're maybe doing a crime story or something that's great so exactly. okay so i think um i think i've let you go through three or four now <laughs> 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 i keep stalling you out but you have seven so what's the next what's the next step toward Strengthening a story through character?
0: So, once you've figured out what kind of character you're dealing with and you've kind of gotten the sense of like who your character could become, right? Now you need to send them on a journey. And the way I think of the journey is basically I I use the acronym WORST because it's all about the want, right? So, each of those letters W O R S T W stands for the want. What does the character want? Oh what are the obstacles So like as you're sending them on a journey You have to throw obstacles at your character You have to make things happen That make the character not reach the thing They want or otherwise you're going to have A very short story Then the R and the S are risks and stakes and these kind of go together right like the risk like what is the character willing to risk what are they willing to give up what are they willing to sacrifice but on the other hand like what's at stake if they don't succeed what happens if they aren't able to get the thing that they want and so having those questions in your mind as the characters moving through the events of the plot is really important because it will help you then craft the narrative in a way that stays centered on your character. And then finally, of course, the T is what we were just touching on, the transformation, like, like I said, it doesn't have to be a polar transformation, it's simply showing that there is the potential for change and I would argue that even in a series, the character might have some change, it's just not you know, a polarizing change, but the character gains a deeper, like hopefully, if it's an if the author is crafting the series well, that the character in book five will be a slightly different person than they were in book one of the same series, that they're growing and evolving over over the course of however many books. Yes, you could have things that are episodic where you literally could pick any book out of the series out of order, but I feel like the ones that work really well are when the character does kind of continue to grow throughout the series.
1: Yeah, I mean, my perspective is that wherever the greatest promise of transformation is or the greatest struggle is, that's where the greatest change will be. So some stories tend to be really externalized where the character is really trying to solve the problem or save the world, like you think of James Bond or Batman or Superman, any of these kind of superhero kind of things. Um, and so that's where the most of it'll mainly be a change externally and not internally. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But and like the character, um, yeah.
0: the character could affect change outside of him or herself, and that's yeah. still change than it is to be changing within themselves.
1: So it's more of a revelation than it is. You know, a transformation, and um, but when it's an internal struggle, um, learning to love again or find forgiveness, then you'll have more of a transformation within the character. And it's interesting because I asked um, one of the um, well, uh, he was he was one of the people who helped the X Files to get started off the ground. Oh wow! When he was an, he was an executive at the at the company where the X Files started. And uh his name is uh Stephen laRue and um so I asked Stephen LaRue. I said, "Who is the protagonist of the x files because again, <laughs> most people will say that the protagonist has to change, and of course Fox Mulder doesn't change he's static he's mm-hmm. um but that Scully changes, she becomes like <laughs> like Mulder basically throughout the the series but but in and he pointed out to the same thing he said that you know, as far as revelation, Mulder is the main character because we see what he's capable of. But as far as transformation, Scully would be the main character because we see who she's becoming.
0: I think also so, with when yeah. you have a situation like that where you have two very strong focal characters, the other piece of it, too, and I've had discussions with authors um who write like multiple point of view novels where it's pretty evenly weighted between the different points of view, that sometimes it's not even the author's job to decide who the protagonist is. In some cases, albeit somewhat rare cases, the person who makes that decision is the reader because the reader latches on to character A more than character B. And so then because the book is an interactive thing to that reader, that character becomes the protagonist.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I would never argue with someone who says that you can have multiple protagonists or two protagonists because I mean theoretically I agree. In my in my experience, I usually would say I can only find one. Protagonist to a story. And I've met people who are like, well, my, you know, I want to pitch my story to an agent and I have two protagonists, so it's really interesting. I said, no, you have one. They said, no, two. And I was like, well, maybe you have two, but when you're pitching it, don't pitch it that way, or the agent is, or the editor is going to be like, I'll already. This guy probably doesn't, because there's so, so many views out there about like having a single protagonist, and that if you don't, the story will be muddy, or people won't know who to identify with, and so it's all. Yeah, it's interesting, I think.
0: I'll actually skip to step six because that sort of speaks to this because we've already sort of covered step five, but that's bringing your character to life. So bringing the character okay, to yeah. life scene by scene. And in step six, it's all about the supporting cast, right? So like you, I personally tend to believe that in most books there is only one protagonist. Yes. Yeah. I've gotten into some heated discussions with some people and some not so heated intellectual conversations about, you know, whether it's possible to have multiple protagonists. Sure. And I think from a per Pragmatic level, like what you said with pitching, I think definitely good to stick to just the one. But I think even in terms of like the craftsmanship of the novel, the reason you want to have one protagonist is because then you know exactly what the job of all the other characters are. And that's what step six is. It's developing the supporting cast. Because my theory is that once you know who your protagonist is and what they want and what their goals are and how you want to bring them, you know, sort of develop them and bring them to life throughout the story, then the goal of all the other supporting characters is only one thing. And that's to support that development of the protagonist. So whenever I'm working on a story or whenever I'm looking at, you know, studying and analyzing a novel or a short story, the thing I'm always thinking with the supporting cast is, okay, why is this character doing this? How does that relate to then the main thread of the main character? And, When a book is well crafted, when it's done well, that supporting character is always doing something that ultimately contributes to the journey of the protagonist so a great example for instance is in um i mean the hunger games is one of my favorites and that is so great because you have all these supporting characters and you can see how when one supporting character kind of falls out of the story like when katniss goes off to the games and her sister is no longer available as a supporting character who should come into into play in the story why it's rue who's basically a surrogate sister character that essentially fills the similar roles for Katniss and her sort of development as a character that her sister had filled in the beginning of the story. And so as you look at the craftsmanship of the role that all the other characters play around the protagonist, that it, when it works, it's like everything just sort of falls to get like holds together like a house of cards. It's kind of awesome.
1: I think that's one of the uh, I think that's a good point and I think that's one of the reasons that the Harry Potter stories were so popular and so successful uh, is the cast of characters Uh, Mm. my daughter was a huge fan of the Harry Potter books and I was like well who's your favorite character and it wasn't Harry Potter Um, and I was like who's who's the most heroic do you think and it wasn't Harry Potter (laughs) especially (laughs) at the early books he's kind of whiny and is not very heroic, but her, you know, her favorite character was Hermione, and Mm -hmm. and uh, who ends up bailing Harry out in in an awful lot of stories until finally at the end when he kind of has his moment in the sun. But you know, but but when I read, yeah, when I read the Harry Potter, I read one of the books, and that's what struck me was I think what makes it so interesting is you have this incredible cast of characters that all are so colorful and interesting and. Even if Harry might not be as intriguing or engaging, especially early on in the series, so all of these others are, and that creates this interest, I think, in the story.
0: You know, it's interesting too, because like, there's so many really cool. Like, you could do a masterclass just by like reading all of the Harry Potter books. is basically a masterclass in and of itself in terms of story structure and plot and characterization. But like, even just those three like the little trio, right? The Harry, Ron, and Hermione trio. It's interesting. Like it, To me, my theory is that that is very deliberate choice of three characters. It could have been just Harry and Ron, or it could have just been Harry and Hermione. But no, there are three of them. And the reason that that works so well is because Inevitably, at some point in each and every one of those books, two of the characters are aligned together, and the other one is left out, and there is some sort of power play between the three. And if you only had two characters, if Harry only had one best friend, that would not work. So, And it's funny, like in some of the books, the the alliances actually shift like four times within the same book, right? And it's kind of hilarious how it works out. And it's interesting also that like Hermione is sort of the brains of the operation, and Harry's kind of the – you know, act first think later but then Ron at first i was like what's he doing he's just kind of there but he's a comic <laughs> relief like he's the right. funny guy like he's the sort of heartwarming buffoon but who's still kind of a good friend and that and he allows harry an opportunity to shine because let's face it next to hermione harry kind of looks like an idiot most of the time <laughs> but next to ron he looks pretty darn sharp so it kind of also helps out with that so it it's interesting when you look at the dynamic of how, like, when crafting those supporting characters around the protagonist, think about, like, how many there are, how those interactions and the power plays between them can uh, come down, and that can, like, spark your story and bring it to
1: life. Yeah, in one of my um, uh, novels, uh, series, the, this um, Patrick Bowers is this FBI agent. Anyway, his wife has died, and he's raising his stepdaughter now. Um, And so there's this different dynamic within that relationship where, in one book, they're close emotionally at the beginning and they drift apart. In one, they're apart and they drift closer. So it's not just emotional but also physical. So in one book, they're physically separated at the beginning and they come together. And the dynamics of physical closeness and emotional closeness – give you all sorts of different varieties. They're emotionally close now, but they're physically, you know, distant, whatever. And so each of the books sort of explored a different dynamic of that relationship. And, I mean, that was just with one character. But to build a story, clearly you're going to have more relationships and more dynamics at play. But it made me think of that when you were talking about that as how um, the, the relationships can change and the alignments can change depending upon where it is in the story.
0: Absolutely, which beautifully segues to step seven, right, which is resolve the journey. Now that you've sent your character on this journey, how do you resolve it? And, again, I like to think in matrices, so I think in terms of a two-by-two matrix. And, basically, you go back to that question of what does the character want and – or, actually, no, not – yeah, the question, what does the character want, and then you ask yourself, okay, does the character get the thing they want? So when you get to that climactic scene – At some point after that all shakes down, the character has either gotten what they wanted or they didn't. And then you also have to ask yourself, okay, but does the character still want that thing? Because sometimes – as the story develops, the character realizes that they don't really want the thing that they set out wanting in the first place. So the way that two-by-two two matrix plays out is if the character gets what they want and they still want it, it's a happy ending, and if, it's, if they don't get what they want and they still want it it's a tragic ending so think you know happy ending the hunger games even though it's not a very happy book is actually a happy ending because the character gets what she wants and she still wants it and you know a lot of shakespeare tragedies you know fill in with whatever shakespeare tragedy you can think of those would be the tragic (laughs) endings and then the but the other ones i think are the more interesting ones right like if you have a character who doesn't get what they want but it turns out that they kind of don't really want it anymore. That's what I call the change of heart ending. And usually the way those stories tend to play out is at some point, usually at the midpoint, the character has this moment where they kind of sort of get the thing they want And then they realize it's not all it's cracked up to be. And so then they course correct and they go towards a new thing. A great uh, example of this is the uh, story, the book Pride and Prejudice, where in the middle, even though the character doesn't really want a proposal from Mr. Darcy, the reader kind of wants a proposal from Mr. Darcy. And, you know, so he proposes and then she turns him down and they have that big fight and then she gets the letter. And that's literally smack dab right in the middle where she realizes that Mr. Darcy is actually not this horrible person he's actually pretty you know ethical and upstanding citizen and the really bad person was mr wickham and so that like kind of change in her mind then makes her realize that like maybe she doesn't really hate mr darcy and maybe getting proposed to by him is not such a horrible thing after all i mean that's sort of where she ends up but um in that moment she just has to this moment of reflection where she realizes like oh my gosh I actually don't really know. I'm not a good judge of who's a good person and who's a not good person. So that's a change of heart ending when the character sort of course corrects in the middle. And then the other one, this is one that I actually have a hard time finding examples for at the novel level, but you'll find a lot of short stories and novellas. And that's what I call the uh, be careful what you wish for ending. (laughs) So that's where the character doesn't get what they want or gets what they want but realize it's not all it's cracked up to be.
1: Yeah, they do. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, they realize, like, oh, my gosh, it's not that great. I don't really want this anyway. But um, the problem with that is that most novels that are novel length, they have that moment, but it's in the middle. And then the book resolves with a change of heart ending. It's Mm -hmm. very rare, I think, to have a situation where the character in the climax gets the thing that they want, and then they realize – wait, this actually totally sucks. Um, The only example I can think of is the novella Ethan Frome by uh, Edith Wharton, where at Uh the climax, he finally thinks that he's going to be able to run away with this woman that he's in love with, and then they have this accident, and it turns out that this woman that he thought was wonderful is actually a horrible person. (laughs) So that's the closest I can come to, to a be careful what you wish for ending. But um, but yeah, so that's sort of how it shakes down with the resolution.
1: Made me think of the short story The Monkey's Paw when you were talking about that. Mm. They get what they want but they realize this is not what I want. Exactly. <laughs> I made this wish, but wait a minute, this is definitely not definitely not what I want. Wow, I can't believe our time is up already. You um you that was a great um that was a great episode, a great interview. I was just trying to process everything and put it all into context and now a lot of this material is in your book, correct?
0: So other than the storytelling superpower stuff, which was pretty new, all of it yeah. is in my book and with a whole lot of other stuff. So, yeah.
1: And your website, tell us about your website and where we can go to get a copy of your book, where the best place would be to track that down.
0: Actually, the best source of all info DIY MFA related is DIYMFA.com. You'll find a link there to, you can get you can find a link there to buy the book and you can in the like discover classes and tools area. You can also sign up for our newsletter list. I strongly, strongly encourage people to sign up because I love sending juicy newsletters with lots of like nuts and bolts info about writing to my readers. So we send out a newsletter every two weeks. And then sometimes when we have courses and stuff, you'll get more additional emails with those announcements, but it's pretty much every other week.
1: So DIYMFA.com. And right. do you have another presence or, uh, online where we can check out maybe where you're teaching? Or is that is that, again, the best place to look is DIYMFA?
0: DIYMFA. I teach ex- pretty much exclusively in the DIYMFA online courses. We have um, two flagship courses that will be reopening in the fall. So those will be, um, if you get on the list, you'll basically get all those announcements because the list always hears about everything first.
1: That is excellent. Well, I know that everybody will probably listen through not only just once, but probably listen again to take notes and some of the stuff that you were going through because it's really good, and I look forward can to it. Can I reading. add something? Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, sorry. I meant to say also, I totally forgot to mention, we have a podcast too, so if you like listening to podcasts, we have tons and tons of juicy episodes. So you can also find those at DIYMFA.com.
1: Now, is that the best place to look forward, or do you uh, look on i? on iTunes.
0: We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher Radio, we're on Google Play, and if you go to DIYMFA.com backslash podcast, you'll see like the lineup of all of our previous episodes.
1: Excellent. That's great. Yeah, thanks for adding that. So everybody, go out and buy the book now. Go out and check out, sign up on the website, sign up for the newsletter, and you're going to want to get more teaching from Gabriella. And for more information about our other guests and to check out our other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com to keep track of where I'm speaking and my different books and when they come out go to read Stephen James at Twitter um, or stephenjames.net and everyone always remember
0: the art of the story is all in the blend
1: we'll see you next time